Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to see you all. Do you know, uh, a couple of days ago on Friday, I was uh, there filling up my car at the petrol station and uh, I walked in to pay the guy and I noticed the guy at the checkout had a little badge that said training and uh, appropriately it was uh, yellow and black, kind of like the old plates on cars. But it, it got me thinking about all the other areas of life where someone could use a badge like training. It could come in handy, couldn't it? Uh, we do it with car drivers, but why not with dentists or mechanics? There's so much potential there. Or, uh, you know, I was thinking about me here. It's my first two years as a minister. Maybe I should have had a little training badge on the last couple of years. Um, but then in another way, we're always in training, aren't we? We're always always training, we're always learning. We, maybe we should all be wearing training badges all the way through life. Uh, learning from our mistakes, learning from what's taken place. Um, a famous saying is, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, it's a famous saying which is as obvious as it is true. Um, but more than learning from the past, so we don't repeat it, Uh, Our passage today shows us that we need to be learning who God is from the past, learning who God is from history, from all that has taken place. God reveals himself uh, to us through history. Today's passage, it's about a terrible event that happened in history, uh, the exile of Judah from the land. Uh, And if we don't learn about who God is from this history, we will be uh, condemned to repeat it. And the tragedy is uh, that I, I talk to people all the time and uh, they think they know God, but it's clear they haven't learned who he is. They haven't really wrestled with an event like today's uh, that took place with God. They haven't learned about God's character from it. So that's what we're going to do today as we, as we go through. So let's turn to our passage and see what are the lessons from the end of 2 Kings. I'm really looking forward to looking at this passage with you. It's, it's the final passage of 2 Kings. We finally made it through two uh, uh, books of the Old Testament. Um, it's, uh, it's quite an achievement. I think we've done very well in looking at it. And there's been so many lessons along the way, isn't there? Uh, but as I say, uh, firstly, God, uh, God judges. It comes through loud and clear. That's what our passage is about. That, that is the key lesson uh, through this part of the Bible. God judges. We learn about God's character. As a righteous judge, he's moved to punish sin, moved to act against evil. And boy, have we seen some evil in the book of Second Kings. It's just been week after week, another evil king. And you're kind of like, okay, we get it. The kings were bad. Um, the, it, it's, it's almost monotonous. There's so much evil. Another evil king. It's, it's uninspiring. It's sad. It feels a little bit like reading through the newspaper. You know, you read through the newspaper, you just kind of scroll through the headlines and, the, you know, the, the, there's just selfish story after selfish story, abusive behavior, power games, theft, and you kind of read the headlines and you're like, oh, another one. Like, you don't even bother reading Deadhouse. It's just some other selfish person. It's, it's uninspiring. It's monotonous. Uh, it does remind us that the, the thing that is inspiring is righteousness, is goodness. That is truly what energizes us. Well, in Kings, we're down to our last four, four kings, our last four evil kings. I'm going to quickly step through them. I won't focus on their evil, because the passage doesn't, but the consequences of their evil. That is where the focus is. Uh, but it's, it's a key part of Israel's history. It's a key part of the Bible's history. You can't really understand Israel, the Old Testament, the New Testament, unless you understand what happens in this passage. It's a key moment. So we're going to go through it. Our author, our author races through four kings, three empires which swirl around them, uh, and then there are two waves of deportations from Judah. So let's get into it. Our first king is Jehoahaz. Verse 30, it tells us 
that he is the son of Josiah. Remember last week, Josiah, the great reformer? Josiah, whose heart burned after Yahweh as David's had. But we see that righteousness is not genetic. As you read in verse 32, it says, He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. And so God removes his protection from Yahweh. His response to this ongoing evil, he removes his protection. And the Egyptian empire's king, Pharaoh Necho, imprisons the Judean king, and they're forced to pay tribute. Uh, and that's, that's the end of Jehoahaz. He, he dies in prison. That's our first king. <laughs> the next king is um, Jehoiakim, another of Josiah's sons, uh, who's put in place by the Pharaoh to rule over Judah in verse 34. And so God, even in that final hour, is still imploring people to repent. Uh, and so he, he has Jeremiah. If you read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was speaking to Israel at this time. And so you, you can read Jeremiah's prophecies. You know, Jeremiah's a, it's a real mishmash, but at the start of each section in Jeremiah, you read who was the king and who was this written to? Well, we read of a, a prophecy of Jeremiah to the king at that time in Jeremiah 36, verse 3. I think I've got it up. There it is. God says, Perhaps when the house of Judah hears about the disaster I'm planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin. God is he is willing to forgive, even at that late stage. Do you remember Josiah? Remember Josiah found the scroll of God's word. He found the precious scroll of God's word and he had it read to him and it, it changed his life. He, it, he changed the whole country. He, he, he saw what he'd done wrong when he saw, when he, when he heard from God's word from the scroll. And so now the, the, this new king, uh, Jehoiakim is given a scroll from God by Jeremiah. Well, what happens? Does he repent? Jehoiakim, he, he receives the scroll and it's read to him. And the scene is set in, uh, in Jeremiah 36, verse 22. Uh, it's winter. The king is there in his winter quarters. The fire is burning in front of him. I'm assuming, I'm picturing like a snow lodge, something like that. I'm assuming he's got his Ugg boots and his fur jacket on. Uh, and then he has the scroll read to him. And Jeremiah 36, verse 23 says, As soon as uh, Jehudi, his officer, would read three or four columns... Jehoiakim would cut the scroll with the scribe's knife and throw the columns into the blazing fire until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire. What an act of defiance toward God. Talk about rubbing it in God's face. The king takes pleasure in cutting up and burning God's word. It's the complete opposite of Josiah. Second Kings 23 verse 37 summarizes saying he did evil as his ancestors had done. The consequence, well, what choice does God have in the face of such unrepentant evil? Second Kings 24 verse 2 says, The Lord sent Chaldean, uh, Chaldean, it's, it's another word for Babylonians essentially. The Lord sent Chaldean, uh, Armenian, Moabite, Ammonite, raiders against Jehoiakim. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word that the Lord had spoken through his servants, the prophets. And so God does. He, he warned them and then now he sends them. And the king has uh, burned, burned the scroll, wants nothing to do with it. And so sure enough, the enemies come. God acts according to Jeremiah's prophecy. The judge has judged and now sends terrible punishment. Because God, God is righteous. It's who God's character is. God cannot let this evil go unpunished. And the day will come in history when those who are unrepentant will be removed. It's, it's just a matter of time. When you see evil, 
It's just a matter of time until God's righteous character will act against such evil. Kings uses the language of uh, banishment, as we've seen uh, from Second uh, Kings chapter 17, if you remember that. Uh, so here in uh, 2 Kings 24 verse 3, it says, Indeed, this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his sight. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of all the innocent blood he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. You see here, sin led to punishment. The, you know, and we're told it was the shedding of innocent blood, uh, evil that was to be punished. And that's what God does. He, he punishes sin. And I, I think uh, the most terrifying words there are at the end of verse 24. The Lord would not forgive. That sends shivers down my spine. That, that, that thought that you could encounter God and God would look at you and say, it's too late, I'm not going to forgive that pardon. I'm not going to forgive that sin. You, <laughs> people, people think that God is, is all about love. And he is. That, that is a key part of who God is. God is love. Um, but God is also righteous. People make the mistake of thinking judgment is not in his character. But you see it here clearly. God... He does forgive, but he reserves the right not to pardon. That is his right as judge. He, he may forgive a transgression, but he may not. And here he says, I will not forgive. And instead he, he banishes those who have time after time refused to listen to him. We need to meet the real God. We need to worship the true God as he reveals himself to us, to learn from history so that we don't repeat it. For God is going to judge the whole world again, and it will be the same as with Judah. Acts 17, uh, 30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. This is what struck me this week, is reading this passage in in Second Kings. It's a, It's a premonition of what's going to happen in the future, isn't it? How God acted then, he will act again in the future. And so we need to be ready, we need to learn. But these people, they haven't learned, have they? And so they suffer. All people are called to repent in the name of Jesus. Now, now is the time to repent uh, so that this will not happen to you. You need to repent, all need to repent. Uh, so no one is going to repent for us. Every single person needs to look to Christ and to repent to God in his name. That is the only way to be spared from paying the punishment for our evil. Well, on on with our story in Second Kings. Uh, for the passage covers, uh, as I say, key moments in the Bible. And uh, remember, I said there are there are four kings and three empires, and the empires are shifting critically. And so, Second uh, Kings twenty four verse seven tells us that Babylon took everything that the king of Egypt had. And so you can see here that the powers are shifting, the balance shifts. Yahweh, he's mustering the the empires that are going to do the judging of Israel for him. Um, And you can see Babylon has taken over from Egypt. Uh, If you remember, do you remember the northern kingdom in Israel uh, when they were exiled? That was from Assyria. Uh, Assyria invaded the north. And then Egypt now uh, was powerful in chapter 23 of 2 Kings. Uh, and so they were, they were over Judah. Uh, but Babylon now, uh, in chapter 24 is on top. And they will exile. That was the passage that we had read to us by Eddie. They are gonna be the ones that exile Judah. 
Uh, and then, spoiler alert, Persia will come along a little later uh, and, uh, and they'll be put back in the land. But you can see God here shifting and directing the empires. And what matters, it doesn't matter who's in power, what matters is were the people faithful to God at the time? Because God, God is the puppet master. He's controlling these empires and he sends his men against his people. <clears throat> well, the next king of, uh, the next king in our line is Jehoiachin. Um, and under whose evil reign, uh, ultimately Judah is destroyed. We meet Jehoiachin in 24 verse 8. It says, uh, he did evil, we're told. And so God sends the Babylonians in verse 10. Uh, it says, at that time, servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched up to Jerusalem uh, and the city came under siege. So Jehoiachin soon surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians overrun the whole city. They raid the temple of its treasures. In verse 14, we're told, he deported all Jerusalem. Uh, everyone except, verse 14 says, except for the poorest of the land, no one remained. And so that's how Daniel, through these deportations, ended up in Babylon, as we read in the book of Daniel, deported by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it was meant to be God's people in God's land, but the people are no longer in the land. They have been marched out. And so we meet um, the final uh, king, Judah's final king, Zedekiah, in 24 verse 17 who the Babylonians, um, they choose to replace Jehoiachin. So they come in and they take away Jehoiachin as they do and they put in another guy, a puppet, a puppet king, as we say. Um, who, <clears throat> um, and he was the last king of Judah, but he, he did evil again, of course, as we've grown to expect. We're told that in verse 19. Uh, and now the road has truly run out uh, for the evildoers. In verse 20 it says, Because of the Lord's anger... It came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. God could not have his kingdom, his people being evil. He couldn't. He couldn't have his people being unrepentant perpetrators of evil. His character would not allow it, and so they are banished. Total destruction happens uh, because uh, you, just, you almost can't even believe they do this. Uh, Zedekiah rebels against Babylon. Why would you do that? This huge empire, unmatched, who had taken away the previous king, King Jehoiachin. They put in Zedekiah, and Zedekiah now rebels against Babylon. Uh, and of course, that really does spell the end, because Babylon didn't appreciate it. Let's just say that. They come in uh, 25 verse 1 of Second Kings. Uh, Babylon. It says King Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it uh, uh, all around. And so you can see that Babylon uh, had kind of, they deported the people, but they'd kind of left the city standing. Zedekiah rebels and then that's it. They are gonna trounce these people now and it really is all over for Judah. Uh, Zedekiah brings down the wrath of the entire Babylonian army, it says, uh, and they surround the city, they siege it, they starve it out as they did, um, and then after a couple of years they're, they're so out of all possible resources that they are forced to kind of flee, uh, and the Babylonians kind of pick them off as they try to escape. Uh, they capture them, they seize the king Zedekiah, and they sentence him, uh, and uh, Oh, we, we had the sentence read early, earlier, I'll read it again. It's, it's quite shocking and terrible in verse 7 of chapter 25. It says, They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes, 
finally the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. It's a, who, who could think of a worse punishment? It's truly horrific. The final king of Judah is given just, a, you know, an almost appropriately terrible punishment for ignoring God in rebellion. Uh, and then the Babylonians destroy the glory of the land. They, they, as I say, they absolutely trounce it. Um, it. You know, there's these descriptions they go through that its temple, its palaces, its great houses uh, in verse 9 are all destroyed. The wall in verse 10 is all destroyed. They're, they're truly tearing it all apart. The people themselves, those that had remained before in verse 11, are now deported uh, and verse 12 adds a feeble note saying that just a few of the poorest were left in the land to, to look after the fruit trees. That's the kind of uh, stage where they're at. And then it's interesting, I don't know if you noticed, but the author then zoomed in and there was all, this, all of a sudden all this detail about the temple in verses uh, 13 to 18. It's a description about, in detail, of how the Babylonians tore apart the temple, the, the glory of God. So, for example, verse 14 says, they also took the pots, the shovels, the wick trimmers, the dishes. Did you find yourself thinking, why are we talking about dishes? I mean, the whole place has been ripped apart. Why are we now talking about wicks, like candle wicks, wick trimmers? Of course, it, 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 he's saying... The religion of, of, of these uh, Israelites has been torn apart. How, how can they worship God without the temple, without the temple articles? Bit by bit, it's ripped apart. And, and you know, the description of the incredible bronze uh, columns that were lost, it, it's all a description saying, look at this incredible thing that they had that has been taken away and, and will never be back. It, it can never get back to being like that in the land. And so that's what those uh, rich descriptions are saying. God's had it. The, the experiment has failed. The people are to be punished. Uh, the, the cultural elites, those who ran Judah, are, are put to death in verses 18 to 21. And a summary is offered. It says in, in verse 21, So Judah went into exile from its land. That really was it. Truly the end. And then there are kind of two sort of epilogues uh, to this tale to end the book. And the first is the Gedaliah, and the second will uh, come to. Uh, because the Babylonians, they get rid of Zedekiah, and they put in Gedaliah, who's like a, a, a puppet, a puppet ruler to rule Judah. And to explain what's going on here, I keep using this word puppet, whenever an empire or a country takes over another country, takes out their leadership, um, they, need, they need a strategy to replace it, don't they? To replace the king, to replace the leader, to replace the government. Um, and, and, you know, whenever this happens, all through history, that the, the, the invading army has to decide what they're going to do. And, you know, it's interesting, you can see America had the same problem uh, with Afghanistan. So, of course, America went in and uh, took away power from Af- uh, the Taliban. And these are some Taliban fighters. Such an intriguing photo, this one. Uh, Taliban fighters locked up. Um, by so that was in 2021. Two years later, 2000 sorry, 2001 and 2003, the fighting was over, and so the U.S. had to do something about the government, and so they they declare a democracy. This, these are these are the votes being counted. They they do voting in Afghanistan, which of course had never happened before, and uh, they're counting up all the votes. And so America is going to put in another government. It's going to be a democracy. Uh, they, they're trying to establish this democracy, but you, you know it was a democracy. There were parties, but you couldn't vote for the Taliban, could you? Like America was still controlling. It was uh, America was controlling the government, even though it was a democracy. There was no, 
you couldn't vote for the Taliban. This was a, this is America's way of controlling of the country. It was a U.S. controlled democracy, and I'm glad for that. I'm not a fan of the Taliban, but you can see here that you know this is the the president, and he had to. He was very much under the U.S. That was the way it was going to be. Well, there's a little comparison then, but back to the Old Testament, you can see that this this is what's happening in these in these uh, in the tail end of kings here. So you remember for Israel, the Northern Kingdom, these Syrians came in uh, and they took over the Northern Kingdom and they repopulated it with foreigners. I think do you remember this map from a few weeks ago? So this, the before was you had the Northern Kingdom, the Green Air, Israel and Judah, and then the Syrians come and take over the Green, the Israel, the Northern part. And then the little patchwork, all the different colors, is that is that is the Assyrians repopulating the land with all these different people. Well, Babylon had a completely different way of going about it. Instead of repopulating it, they just took the king away, Zedekiah, and then they put in a puppet, another guy, and they just control him. So much more like the U.S. in Afghanistan, actually. They they get someone there and they look just look to control this one person who then governs. Well. Why am I saying all this? Well, that, that person was Gedaliah. The Babylonians put in Gedaliah. He's, uh, he's from the pro-Babylonian uh, party of the Judeans. He was saying, come on, these Babylonians aren't that bad. We're still going to be okay. Come on, let's play ball. But of course, uh, the anti-Babylonian party uh, hated that. And so they uh, kill Gedaliah in verse 25. Uh, and then those who are left have to flee. <laughs> uh, and uh, verse 26, the only safe place for them to flee is back to Egypt. Um, and so that's how, that's how the tale ends. I don't know, if in the Bible, um, there are certain trigger words. You know, there are, everyone, everyone has a trigger word. You know, like someone will say or something and you just kind of cringe a little bit. It's like, ugh, you know. Corp- some of the corporate jargon words are a bit like that. They just kind of bring on a, bring on a rant. Like someone will say, oh, you need, to, you need to think outside the box. It's like, outside the box? What do you mean, what box? Where's the box? I can't see a box. Do people know there's a box? It's a bit of a trigger word. Well, in the Bible, Egypt is a bit of a trigger word. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot behind it. It says these, these, the last of the uh, Judeans had to flee back to Egypt. Um, they, they flee to Egypt. They fled back to Egypt. And, of course, in, in the book of Exodus, when God makes the Israelites, they flee out of Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt. That was who they were. Uh, they, they flee Egypt, or they flee Pharaoh from Egypt across the parted Red Sea into the Promised Land, and now here we are, and they're fleeing back to Egypt. It's kind of saying uh, all all that good, uh, all the, the 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 project that God was doing in the Promised Land has been undone, um, and it's a terrible thing. These people have broken covenant with God. Well, that's, uh, that's the sad end. What's the positive here? How are we to see hope? You know, like uh, the, the, the wind is kind of knocked out of the sails at this point, isn't it? How are you to see hope? This is, this is kind of a constant question. When, when the chips are down, where do you find hope? Um, remember I mentioned a little earlier on, you know, reading through the news headlines and you just kind of like depressing story after depressing story. There's an interesting book exploring this, the news User's Guide by Elaine de Batons. It's a bit of an interesting read, and um, he kind of picks up on this. He, he's like, why are the headlines always so dark and depressing? You know, sex scandals, murder, theft, beatings, economics, recession. That's that's your newspaper for you. <laughs> uh, you know, and in a way, of course, it's uh, the negative stories are somehow more interesting. People 
people uh, read the negative stories for some reason. It's just kind of uh, the way reporting seems to work. They make for good headlines. But he kind of says there's another side to the coin uh, where you can find you know, a much, much more hopeful outlook on life. And he says the good headlines are almost unprintable. And then he has this really interesting list of these good headlines that you would never print. Uh, for example, Grandmother 87 helped up three flights of stairs at the railway station by a 15-year-old bystander she didn't even know. Well, not, not a very interesting news story, but uh, that's, that's very hopeful. Or teacher surmounts his feelings for a young student. It's like a non-event, but that's, uh, uh, or man, man abandons rash plan to kill his wife after a brief pause. <laughs> or, um, uh, billions of people go to bed every night without murdering or hitting anyone. Uh, and I think, you know, Elaine makes a good point. Uh, he's really saying that uh, hope is found in the cup half full, isn't it? Look at the other side of the coin, and that is where you'll find some hope. Uh, but Scripture teaches us that uh, our cause for hope, it's not just reframing to the optimistic, but it's, it's actually knowing that God is good uh, and that he's faithful. Uh, he's faithful to his promises and he's at work. Uh, because God promises to judge, but he also promises to save the lessons from history to be learned is that God, he's sure to bring about judgment against evil, but also that he is sure to save those who repent in Christ. So secondly, the second lesson from Kings is that God saves. Um, very, very briefly now, uh, we get this second epilogue, the last few verses of our passage, the final four verses of the whole book of uh, First and Second Kings. Uh, we have an unexpected message of hope. Let me read verse 27 of chapter 25. Second Kings. It says, On this 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of the Judas king Jehoiachin, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned King Jehoiachin of Judah, released him from prison. So Jehoiachin, king of Judah, who was exiled in Babylon, remember about halfway through today's passage, there he was in Babylon, but he's still alive. He's still alive. And here he's pardoned and shown favor out of nowhere. The Babylonian king reverses his fortunes. I say out of nowhere, the, the author plucks this little moment from 20, 27, 27 years later, it is. Uh, he says, look what happened 27 years later after the exile. And he includes this detail. And we're told of seven unexpected blessings in verses 27 to 30. Um, you know, I'll just rattle them off. He's pardoned. He's released. He's spoken kindly to. Uh, he has his throne over all the other kings that are with him in Babylon. He dines regularly uh, with the king going forward. He, he changes out of his prison clothes, uh, and he's given an allowance going forward. All of these things just pop up kind of out of nowhere. Um, you know, lest you think the author is just kind of trying to put a little positive spin to what's been a bit of a depressing book certainly toward the end. Um, we actually have a record of Jehoiachin's allowance from the Babylonian um, record. So there's a stone. I think I have an image of it there. There's a stone and uh, it records Jehoiachin and this was his uh, allowance in the Babylonian you know, uh, palace. Uh, it's kind of going through all the different kings. So we know that this happened. It's, it's quite an amazing uh, account. It's, it's very much beyond dispute. But what's going on here? Well, God is faithful to his promises, who he is. His promises to judge and to save. God's being faithful um, to the king of Judah. Twice we're told in that verse that this was the king of Judah that all this was happening to. 
uh, because God's not forgotten his promise to King David back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, where he promises that uh, David will always have uh, uh, one of his descendants on the throne in Judah. So surely, um, <laughs> you kind of, you finish today's passage though, and you're like, really? I mean, it does, I know that God said he would be faithful, but also it does seem like he's throwing his people to the wolves. And you can imagine people were saying that. They'd, they'd think about, well, you wouldn't want to be one of Yahweh's followers, would you? Because they're all in exile now. And what's interesting is that God actually addresses this uh, question, this accusation head on. Uh, so Jeremiah uh, chapter 33, verse 24, I think it'll come up. Uh, God says, God says, they say, they're saying, the Lord's rejected the two families he had chosen. And God answers the charge saying, and verse 25 there, uh, this is what the Lord says. If I do not keep my covenant with the day and with the night and fail to establish the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I might also reject the seed of Jacob and my servant David. Indeed, I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. You see what God is saying? As sure as day turns to night, so too is he faithful to his promises to the seed of David. He will restore their fortunes. And so our hope is God's faithfulness, as sure as day turns to night. Next time you're there and you're watching day turn into night, think of God's faithfulness. Sure as day turns to night, God will save those that look to him. All those who look to the son of the king of David will be saved. And that's what Christmas is about. We just did our Christmas service this morning. It's the news that the son of David, the Messiah, has been born. And uh, Lama's going to preach on that next week. (laughs) <laughs> from Luke. It's, it's the, uh, the start of Luke. Luke chapter 1. The Messiah has come, this King of David. God has restored the fortunes of Judah's kings. Well, we began by considering the lessons of history uh, and how, in fact, that uh, history teaches us about God, about who he is. And we've seen uh, he promises. Uh, his promises always happen, both his promises to judge and his promises to save. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your righteousness in judging evil. And we praise you for your goodness and love, for saving a people, creating a nation, and calling all to take part in it. Father, help us to trust you, to rely on your goodness, and to build our lives around you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.